0: You're listening to TIP.
1: Hey, how's everyone doing out there? On today's show, we continue our conversation with New York Times bestselling author, Jim Rickards. If you missed our first part conversation, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to our first 45 minutes of that discussion. This episode picks up where Jim left off in the previous week, and he was describing his concerns with Bitcoin and how it fits into the modern credit-based financial system. Additionally, Jim talks to us about a new venture he's starting that involves artificial intelligence. So without further delay, here's our second part interview with Jim Rickards.
0: You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected.
1: So, Let's just say that we fast forward a year, two years in advance, and let's say Bitcoin has another big resurgence and a, another big price movement. And at this point, let's say the, the US government or any other major economy says, this is enough. We're going to shut this down. Okay. Right. I personally feel that you've had so much entrenchment into the finance industry at that point. I mean, we now have CME with derivatives wrapped around this we're potentially going to have ETF vehicles now that the derivatives are in place that are then going to be wrapped around this. We're going to have options that are then wrapped around the ETF vehicles and everything else. So don't you kind of feel like the longer that the government doesn't make a decision on this, the harder it's going to be for them to actually shut it down? What's your thoughts on that?
2: I think the decision's already been made. I mean, it's interesting, hypothetical, but the decision has already been made. And the fact that Bitcoin's way off the top. It's not just the price has dropped 70%, which it has, but the volumes have dropped. So you're not seeing the transaction volume. A lot of exchanges have been shut down, more under scrutiny. But the point being, a lot of people are getting a very rude awakening about reporting their crypto profits. Some people are going to roll the dice and not report them. They have a good chance of landing in jail. Those who do report them are like, wait a second. I got my Bitcoin. I bought it 1,000. I sold it at... 12,000. I swapped into Ripple. I still have crypto, but you're trying to tell me I owe 10,000 a coin on 1,000 coins. is $10 million. And I owe $4 million in tax when all I have is Ripple. I mean, that's what's happening. You got to pay the tax in dollars, even if you rolled into Ripple or Ether. So people are just finding out the hard way that the rules apply to them. As far as the derivatives are concerned, I remember when uh, late last summer, early fall 2017, when Uh, The Chicago Board Options Exchange and NASDAQ were announcing all these derivatives, and all the Bitcoin groupies were jumping out of the seats. Yay, look at us. We're real. We're respectable. These big established institutions are launching derivatives on our currencies. That validates the use case in our currencies. And I said, man, you don't know anything about derivatives. They're going to crush you. And if you look at when the Bitcoin future was launched and when the the market broke, same day. In other words, one of the reasons it went up was because there was no way to short it. The minute you could create short interest, it's like, hey, bring it on. So I I just said, be careful what you wish for. And those derivatives have proved the undoing. The Bitcoin might have gone to $40,000 if you had never invented a way to short it. But they did, and it went straight down after that. As far as the Chicago boys are concerned, they'll trade anything for a buck. I mean, they don't care. They're not Bitcoin supporters. They're supporters of commissions. You know, soybeans, lumber, pork bellies, Bitcoin, it's all the same. If they can make a spread, if there's any big in it, they'll trade it. So the combination of the fact that they did it for reasons of their own that had nothing to do with supporting the Bitcoin uh, community, and B, the minute you could short it, it fell like a rock dropped off a high building, that tells you all you need to know about derivatives.
3: So, Jim, I have to ask you, what's the bull case? Like I hear like all the bare arguments, and I think you have a lot of good arguments, and they're well-researched. I'm very, very curious now about why can you be wrong or... Why would Bitcoin be the currency or stores of value of the future?
2: Well, you know, it might outperform coal like the pet rock. I mean, I don't have a good bull case for Bitcoin. See, if you say, what's the bull case? My question is, what's the use case? Give me a use case that I can evaluate for better or worse. Now, I gave you a use case for Lumen, which is it's a cheap, efficient micropayments network in a bunch of countries that are forced to removed from the heart of the financial system some of the smart contracts have a use case, but Bitcoin doesn't. So the only use case I see is for criminals, terrorists, and tax evaders. But even there, you'd rather be in Monero or Spectre or one of the other coins that has a little more stealthiness to it. By the way, I'm not counseling people to do any of those bad things, just to be clear. But if, if you happen to be a criminal, you're more likely to be in Spectre or Monero than you are in Bitcoin. So I, I see no use case at all. I think. You know, it should win a place in the Smithsonian as the, the thing that increased consciousness and awareness of cryptocurrencies and made an impact. It was innovative. By the way, Nakamoto made another mistake. See, look, I don't want to be too critical. The guy was a team or woman or whoever, we don't know, but whoever it was could have been a team from the NSA building backdoors with a, another shooter drop, but who knows, right? But they didn't know that much about monetary economics. There's no reason why a really smart developer, a really smart coder, engineer, should be an expert on monetary economics. But if you are an expert on monetary economics, you know that capping the, the number of coins is fatal. That will prevent it from being widely used as a currency. And here's why. The criticism was the Fed printed $4 trillion QE. I mean, Nakamoto left us clues. It was code about bank bailouts and he or she, she or it. Clearly had an animus towards uh, a lot of the bailouts and the money printing and QE and things that were done in 2008. Okay, that's a fair criticism. I share that criticism. But the solution was, we're not going to be like a central bank. We're not going to have all this quantitative easing. We're going to cap the number of Bitcoin. I believe the number is 21 million. And we're, we're getting closer to that number. Now, we'll never get there, by the way, because of the exponential increase in the energy usage to make the next coin. But there'll be some natural level where it caps out. That's not good. Because it has an inherent inflationary bias. One of the attractions of gold, by the way, is that gold output expands at roughly the rate of the global economy. Not exactly. The global economy grows 2.93% a year. Gold output, mining output as a percentage of total stock above ground is about 1.6% a year. So it's not perfect. Nothing is. But it syncs up pretty well. See, the money supply has to be elastic. If the economy is growing and the money supply is not growing, you have a deflationary bias. The money becomes worth more because if you have a fixed amount of money in a growing economy, then each unit of money buys more of that growing economy, which is deflationary. The money is more valuable. Now you don't want the opposite when you have too much money. Now you don't have deflation, you have inflation and the money is less valuable. Deflation is bad. Inflation is bad. What you want is elasticity and money roughly in sync with the capacity of the real economy to grow that's what milton friedman advocated that was part of the beauty of the gold standard etc now what happens when you have a deflationary money which is what bitcoin is because it can't grow beyond a certain point well you don't have a credit market who in their right mind would borrow in money that is worth more when you have to pay back the debt that means your debt is going up over and above interest so i borrow in a certain amount of bitcoin but when i pay you back the bitcoin is worth a lot more well that stinks for me because my loan went up, doubled or tripled or whatever. So you'll never borrow in a deflationary currency, which means there's never a credit market. If you don't have a credit market, you can't have an economy. And that's what drives Yeah, base money is important. M0 is important. M1 is important. Absolutely. But the economy is driven on credit. Credit is a high multiple of the base money. It's credit in the form of bank credit and lending and increasing deposits. So a deflationary currency, which is what Bitcoin is, is doomed to fail because it's not elastic, over and above all the other reasons I mentioned.
3: I know you have a lot of contacts in the central bank, not just in the U.S., but all over the world. What do they say about Bitcoin specifically or about cryptocurrencies? Is that something that they are concerned about in any way?
2: Well, it's what I described. And the closed door... It's becoming more of an open door because they have to act It's kind of, it goes to your point, Preston, if they wait too long, you know, this cat's out of the bag, so to speak. There are some real Bitcoin millionaires out there and there are some Bitcoin billionaires out there. And the math is simple. If you bought your Bitcoin for five bucks and you bought, you know, a hundred thousand coins for half a million bucks and it went to 20,000, and you sold out. I mean, you're a billionaire. So I don't dispute that those cases exist. But the point I make is that how did you make the money? You took it from suckers who were paying you $20,000 a coin, South Korean you know, auto mechanics who hawked their inventory, guys in West Virginia who took out a home equity loan and bet the ranch at crazy prices because they thought this was easy money or a way to retire early. That's how you made your money. Is that the economic model you want? There's no value created. There was no wealth created. There was no ingenuity. There was no Bill Gates. There was no Warren Buffett. It was just a wealth transfer from early adapters to suckers.
3: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
0: Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. So Jim, you've been uh, working as a chief
1: global strategist at Miraglim Holdings, and you're working on a thing called
2: Raven. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you're doing here? Sure. Thank you. I'm glad to. This is, uh, It's a company I started with a partner, Kevin Massigill uh, about a year and a half ago. By the way, Kevin, like yourself, is an Army background. as an Army Ranger, Mountain Division, and uh, worked in Army Intelligence. We're off to a good start. And here's what we're doing. The company's MiracleM. Our product is Raven. And that was in honor of the Raven of Zurich, which um, if you read my book, The Road to Ruin, it was it started with the uh, little bio and history of uh, Felix Summery, who was Austrian-born, but lived most of his life in Switzerland. Banker who had an uncanny track record of predicting all the great events of the 20th century in advance. Saw World War I coming, sold all of his customer securities, converted to gold, moved the gold to Norway, and set out the war. When the war was over, everyone else was ruined, his clients were still rich. Saw the inflation of the uh, 19s and 1923 period, saw the collapse of the gold exchange standard of the 1920s, uh, 30s, and so forth throughout the century up until uh, his death in mid-century. And he was called the Raven of Zurich because the Raven is associated with prophecy and prognostication and omens and so forth. So that was his nickname. So we call our product Raven. And what we're doing is we are building a system for predictive analytics in capital markets. And you need to let that sink in a little bit because the capital markets are, you know, the biggest markets in the world. And we're going to tell you what's going to happen. That's what predictive analytics are using our technology. And um, a couple things about that. First of all, a lot of people will tell you that's impossible. They'll go, oh. That's interesting Jim that don't you know that that cannot be done well the answer is it cannot be done using the mainstream technologies and using the mainstream methodologies because those methodologies are badly flawed it can be done using the right technology and the right branches of science so that's one of our innovations we look all the time at competition you know great firm like Morgan Stanley they spend 2 billion dollars a year in R&D and the other big banks spend comparable amounts and you see Paul Jones, you know, Paul uh, Tudor Investments, and Stevie Cohen at 0.72. These guys with practically unlimited resources. They're all yeah, we're, we're getting into this, you know, artificial intelligence doing this. And I, and I look at that very closely because I'm like, man, if they're doing what we're doing, I'm not sure I want to be in this business because we're not spending $2 billion, but they're not. So we're very satisfied that we are unique in applying new branches of science. Not science that we invented. This is some of the science is a couple hundred years old. But the application of it to problems in capital markets, and a lot of this in in the case of myself and Kevin and Terry Rickard, who's our chief scientist and uh, just absolutely brilliant, groundbreaking, applied mathematician. We all have a background in intelligence. Kevin worked in military intelligence. Terry did work for the Navy. I did a lot of work for the CIA. So we have that kind of mindset of how do you solve problems when you don't have all the data? I always say if you have all the data, a smart high school kid can solve the problem. How do you solve a problem? How do you proceed? How do you make forecasts about, in my case, the next terrorist attack with very limited data? Well, there are ways to do it. One of the main ways to do it is something called Bayes' rule or Bayes' theorem. So that's one of our inputs. The other one is complexity theory, and we've talked a lot about that. It's amazing the applications of complexity theory all over the place in meteorology, seismology, uh, volcanology, forest fire management, traffic management. So many areas where you see uh, complex dynamic systems and you can use this science to get better results. I'm dumbfounded that no one's applied it to capital markets, but we are. The other branch we're using is behavioral psychology. Now, this one has had a lot more take up on Wall Street, not as much as it should. It's more in kind of government policy, you know, Cass Sunstein, Richard Thaler, Nudge, all this stuff. So you see it in the public policy realm. You know, it really goes back. I uh, mean, Stanley Milgram in the 1950s, but prominently Daniel Kahneman, Amos Tversky, in the 1970s and 80s, doing uh, very simple but ingenious experiments. Like they'll go to a group of uh, subjects and say, "I'm going to give you two choices. I've got three dollars in my hand, and I've got four dollars in the other hand. You can have the three dollars with 100% certainty. You can just come and take the three dollars." You can have the $4 with an 80% probability. Some risk, you won't get it. Well, Janet Yellen would do the math and say, well, $4 with an 80% probability, the expected value is 320. Do an inequality, 320 is greater than three. I'll take the four bucks, take my chances. When you do this experiment, overwhelmingly people take the $3. So why do people take the lower expected return or what mathematicians would call the lower expected return? The answer is they don't like to lose. In other words, the value of the possible loss, even at twenty percent, outweighs the smaller gain you're gonna get by going with the sure thing. So these are examples of what efficient market theorists call irrationality, but they're actually rational if you put humans back in the ice age, and the risk is that not that you won't get the four bucks, but that you'll be eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. And there are many, many, but I just mentioned a couple confirmation bias, uh, recency bias, anchoring bias, you know, et cetera. There, there are, uh, last time I looked, there were 180 of these cognitive biases. So we've, we've taken a close look at that. And the fourth branch of science we use is history. And you won't find any economists using history. You'll find economic historians who are expert. But to say that we can look at the past and gain valuable lessons about what policymakers will do in the future, that's rare. So we're using Bayes' theorem complexity theory, behavioral psychology, and history. So these are our applied sciences. Now, how do we combine them? Well, we, we combine them in a neural network, which again, by themselves are not that unusual. We've all seen maps of neural networks, but you have nodes and edges, and some are output nodes, some are input nodes, some are recursive functions where it's an output and then it becomes an input. Some of them are actionable, some of them are exogenous. So you know, what would a neural network look like for whether the Fed's going to raise interest rates in June? You know, you'd put in uh, employment report, you'd put in disinflation, PC core deflator, and what's going on in the currency wars, and who's the new Fed chairman? And, you know, you have, you have all these nodes. So, okay, we so we got four branches of science. We process them through a neural network. And who's our analyst? Well, our analyst is Watson. We've teamed with IBM. Watson can read... 200 million twitter feeds in real time with plain language comprehension or every page of every 10q 10k you know fed speech I read, i'm a geek i read a lot of them but i can only read so many but watson can read them all and we're working with a team of a cognitive linguists in finland who has some absolutely cutting edge you know the, the simple word association is you know I'm, I'm trying to find your website and i'm like ah uh, well if i just put impressed in a Stig. I know I'll find it. Like Google's that smart, right? But okay, so that's word association. But there are more sophisticated, grammatical, syntactical ways of doing that. And Watson speaks about eight languages. So we've got the four branches of science. We've got the way of combining them in a neural network. We can populate what's in the neural network with billions of pages of plain language comprehension by Watson. And then, of course, human oversight. Humans are important. They never go away. We tweak these things continually. And what we're doing is we'll tell you where the euro is going to be in six months relative to the dollar. Now, this sounds funny, but believe it or not, it's actually easier to forecast six months than one day. I don't know what the euro is going to do tomorrow. It could go up or down. There's a lot of noise in the short. Run. I could have a view, but my forecasting ability six months out is much, much greater, particularly with the tools we're talking about. We'll tell you where the Chinese yuan is going to be, where the, the euro is going to be, where the 10-year notes are going to be, et cetera. And again, with a three, six-month horizon using the method we described, much more accurate. hundred percent? Absolutely not. Nothing's a hundred percent. But in this game, if you can get to 70, 75, you are way ahead of the pack. Now, if you're a day trader, our system's not interesting to you. I mean, if I tell you the euro is going to be 130 by the end of the year, and you bet the ranch on that, and it goes down tomorrow, you just lost all your money. So doesn't really work for day traders. Hedge funds have a tough time with this because they're on a mark to market basis. And again, you have to allow for the fact that you know you could be right in the long run, but wrong in the short run, and that could be costly. But if you're an institution, if you're a sovereign wealth fund, if you're a college endowment, if you're an insurance company, if you're one of these very, very large portfolios where most of your money is actually managed by third parties, that view that we offer you is very, very valuable because If we're telling you the euro is going to be higher at the end of the year, and that is one of our outputs right now, and you look around at your managers and they're all short the euro, you better pick up the phone. You could lose a lot of money in the next six months. Forget about the daily mark to market. So, this is a tool that will be of the most value to the largest buy side institutions in the world, the largest money managers in the world. We're not going to pick stocks. We're looking at the big macro tickers. So, you know, yield of maturity on 10 year note, German Bund, JGB. Cross rate, euro, U.S. dollar, euro, Swiss franc, yuan, U.S. dollar, yen, ruble, et cetera. Some of the big commodities, oil, gold, copper, a few others, and, uh, sorry, central bank policy rates. So what's the Fed going to do and what's the ECB going to do? So that's our universe of tickers. I've described the science. No one else is doing this. We're very far along. Couldn't be more excited. Got a lot of uh, good investor uptake. Anyone's uh, interested, they could just go to our website, MirrorGlim.com. M-E-R-A-G-L-I-M.com to learn more. But this, by the way, uh, this is a continuation of the work that my partners and I did at the CIA. This is Project Prophecy, third generation. So Project Prophecy was the predictive analytic engine that we built for the CIA to predict terrorist attacks based on a strategic study that was done after 9-11. It worked so well that we were getting you know, chastised by the general counsel because we, we kept finding insider trading. That was not terrorist related we were looking for terrorists but we kept finding like normal crooks we were telling the sec and they said we well, can't do that because cia is not a law enforcement agency so we started our cash and release program we let the sleazeballs go but kept looking for terrorists but the system worked very well this is way beyond that this is third generation uh, ai again combined with the power of watson so we're just having a lot of fun with it
1: i'm curious do you guys already have a working prototype with this and this is Absolutely fascinating, by the way.
2: Well, the answer is yes. And I was the one who uh, stood in one of the, those capsules on the London Eye on uh, June 20th, 2016, three days before Brexit, in front of a camera telling people that the UK was going to vote for Brexit, the pound was going to collapse, gold was going to soar. In the days leading up to the 2016 election, saying Donald Trump was going to win, I got laughed at, you know, ridiculed, whatever. These were not lucky guesses. This was using exactly the science that I'm describing to you now, you know, with a lot of inputs. And, you know, I'll give you a simple example of the polling. You know, Hillary was always ahead in the polls. Well, you looked at the polling methodology. The first thing you saw was that they were oversampling Democrats. So there are more Democrats than Republicans. So a fair poll would be about, you know, 53 percent Democrat, 47 percent Republican. That would be an honest poll because there are more Democrats. But they were sampling kind of 58, 42, 57, 43. So they were oversampling Democrats. And then within the oversample, they were oversampling African-Americans who have a much higher propensity to vote for the Democratic candidate, you know, 90% as opposed to maybe 70 or 80%. So that counted for another point. So once you made those adjustments, Trump was always ahead. You know, he had to take the poll results, adjust them for the two things that I just mentioned. And there was a lot else in the analysis. but. So we called Brexit, we called Trump in January and February 2017 using Fed Funds Futures implied Probability of Rate Hike. The market was giving a 30% probability that the Fed would hike rates in March of 2017. Our system was giving it an 80% probability. The Fed saw this, the Fed freaked out. The Fed said, wait a second, the market doesn't believe us. This was after, remember, they went through all of 2015 with one hike, all of 2016 with one hike. And then in December 2016, the Fed says, we're going to hike three or four times. Our system said, yeah, you're right. You are going to hike in March. The market said, well, we don't believe you. So the Fed freaked out. And in three days at the end of February, Yellen, Dudley, and Leo Brainerd all went out and gave speeches and practically yelled, said, hey, we're going to raise rates. Wake up. And the market implied probability went from 30% to 80% in three trading days at the end of February 2017. And I was it converged with, we were already at 80%. The market was at 30%. In a couple of days, the market converged at 80. And then by the meeting date, which I think was March 13th or somewhere around there, everybody was at 100%. You knew they were going to raise it then. But these are real world cases.
3: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the
4: right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing Health and wellness business from the founders of the joint chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888 994 3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Call right now 888 994 3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com.
0: Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day to day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah. So I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered, and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day, you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB.
3: All right, back to the show.
1: So where are you looking for two specific things? Is the dollar relative to other currencies, how is that looking in the next six months? And then also oil, what's that looking like in the next
3: six months?
2: We're looking at a euro, uh, kind of 130 by the end of the year. So that's a significant increase in the euro, a significant diminution in the value of the dollar. That's one of the ones we're mainly focused on. We've definitely got the Fed hiking rates in June. And by the way, we're not. it's not that we're always out of consensus. We're not contrarians. Oh, the market says this, so we say the opposite. Sometimes the market's right with us. Sometimes they're not. We don't care. I mean, we look at the market. We, we care in that sense. But we're going to go with our methodology because it's, uh, it's very solid and very proven. Uh, and as I say, with our team, we're building out these what are called uh, maps or or neural networks. Uh, and, the, and there are a lot of work. I mean, the, the engineering and the math inside is an awful lot of work in and of itself. And it's all proprietary. But just getting the subject matter expertise to identify the key nodes and the key factors and inputs, that's a lot of work as well because it's easy to miss some. And we've developed them for... for geopolitical events as well as the economic events I described. We've got the president pulling out of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the so-called JCPOA. This is our deal with Iran on, on nuclear weapons. It's not a treaty. I think everyone knows it's not a treaty. I'm not sure what it is. I don't think it was ever signed. I don't think it was never ratified by any legislature. There was some backdoor ratification by the US Senate. but. It was never ratified by the Iranian parliament. It was never signed by anybody. It's just a piece of paper that John Kerry and Ross and Johnny cooked up. And everyone, it's kind of a handshake deal between two parties who don't trust each other. But look for Trump to pull out of that in the months ahead. But, you know, we're getting, uh, we're getting a lot of output. But, it, but just to be clear, this is still in development. We've got a, a really cool team. The people who are doing our user interface, these used to call it the, U, the UI, the user interface. But I learned we call it the UX which is the User Experience. That's the new name for the user interface. But these are the folks who did uh, Iron Man 2. They did Black Panther uh, title sequence. They're absolutely brilliant. We're very happy to be working with them. So we just got a lot of uh, good people on the team having a lot of fun with it.
3: So, Jim, it's really interesting studying the work that you guys do. You know, It's a lot of different fields. and It was actually kind of interesting how you talked about Keynes and Trotsky in the 70s and people just puzzled that you would combine, you know, finance and economics with psychology, and they even got a Nobel Prize for that because it was just mind-blowing for the establishment. Could you tell us your personal story about taking the road less traveled? Because this seems, I guess, for most people, like a very unorthodox way of thinking and perhaps not being more tempted to use conventional methods that you you say they were laughed at whenever you said Trump would win and all the ridicule that uh, you're not in here. So I, I hope I, I'm not uh, <laughs> saying something wrong, but like whenever you put yourself out there and say something like this and and are so ambitious in the way that you combine your fields, where do you really get your drive from?
2: I was kind of a lawyer minding my own business. I worked at a major commercial bank. I worked at Citibank for 10 years. I worked at one of the major investment banks, a primary deal on government securities. I worked for what at the time was one of the biggest most successful hedge funds in the world, uh, long-term capital management. And then along came 1998, and long-term capital management not only failed spectacularly, if it had just failed and we had just lost $4 billion in one month, which we did, that would have been a pretty big story. But we took global capital markets to the brink of collapse, and that is not an overstatement. I was in the room, we had the Treasury, the Fed, we were waking up the Italian finance minister, in the middle of the night, because Long Term Capital was the biggest trader and holder of Italian government bonds outside the Italian Treasury. The Italian Treasury was one of our investors. So was the Kuomintang, you know, the Taiwanese Army. I mean, we were networked and we were in every market in size, like you wouldn't believe. And I said, you know, if we had failed, I mean, we lost money, obviously, but but failed in the sense of actually going bankrupt, I would have just slept in the next day. Like my job would have been over. But our $1.3 trillion of derivatives would have been instantaneously transferred to Wall Street and say were the counterparties. We were no longer good for it. And they would have had to cover all of a sudden two-sided positions become one-sided positions when your counterparty goes away and you have to cover. Imagine we had $15 billion in equity positions. We were the largest player in risk arbitrage on Wall Street, bigger than... You know, Goldman Sachs or any of the hedge funds that specialized in this. We were in every deal. We were in Citigroup Travelers, Lockheed Boeing, MCI WorldCom. I mean, name it. We and the cascade that would have followed the other banks that would have failed in our wake would have collapsed the entire global financial system. So as a lawyer, I negotiated that bailout. We got through it, closed up shop. People went on. Actually, some of the guys went on to make a billion dollars doing other things. Uh, our back office became a hedge fund servicing company called Globop that was sold for close to a billion dollars some years later. So everybody got back on their feet. So as a lawyer, I felt, well, I had done my job. I mean, there were no enforcement actions, no, and there shouldn't have been. There were no penalties, no lawsuits, nothing. We all moved on. But I was very intellectually unsatisfied. I said, wait a second. We really did have 16 finance PhDs on our executive committee. We did. We actually got complaints from deans of business schools who said we were depriving academia of the next generation of economic scholars because we were hiring so many bright PhD candidates. They said, who, who are you? You're hiring all the geniuses. Who's going to be the faculty? That was a serious complaint from one of the uh, Ivy League schools and two Nobel Prize winners. And they actually were that smart. It wasn't like fake smart. They actually did have 160, uh, 165 IQs. I knew them all, good guys. So you get the finest, the absolute finest minds in finance. Some of the founders and inventors of modern financial theory, two Nobel Prize winners, and yet you fail that spectacularly. My takeaway was there must be something wrong with the theory. They're not dopes. They weren't venal. They weren't bad people. There must be something really wrong with how they think about risk because otherwise this couldn't have happened. So I set out on a personal odyssey to find the answer to that. What went wrong? And I did. And the main thing I found out was that the reliance on the normal distribution of risk, the so-called bell curve, the efficient market hypothesis, assumptions about risk-free rate, assumptions about prices moving continuously from point A to point B, so you can transact smoothly at every point along the way, that every single one of those things was untrue. Markets are not efficient. Risk is not, the degree distribution is not a normal distribution. It's a power curve. Markets do not move smoothly and continuously. They gap up and gap down. Things come out of nowhere. Now now Nassim Taleb was doing similar work at the same time, and he came out with his book Black Swan. But where, and I met him, he's a very funny guy, a nice guy. But where I parted ways with Taleb, Taleb demolished the bell curve. Took a baseball bat and just bludgeoned it into like you know dust. And that needed to be done. But then he threw up his hands. He walked away. He said, hey, "And by the way, you can't quantify this. It's just just be long volatility. I'm a philosopher. Have a nice life." So he criticized the existing paradigm, which is a good thing, but he didn't take it any further. I wasn't satisfied with that. I felt that, you know, okay, now I know what doesn't work, but what does work? There must be some quantitative scientific way of understanding this phenomena. And that's when I was introduced to complexity theory, and I spent a long time doing complexity theory. And that was kind of had a bad reputation because a lot of people on Wall Street you go back to the 90s they were trying to use chaos theory and there was a lot of confusion about the difference between chaos theory and complexity theory chaos theory really doesn't work on wall street but it's chaos theory is like a little branch of complexity theory complexity theory is a much bigger field and it works extremely well when when you set the dials in uh, in certain places and what became apparent is that capital markets were complex systems if, if i gave you If you went to the University of Michigan Physics Department and and took a course in complexity from a professor like Scott Page, who doesn't know anything about finance. So brilliant physicist, doesn't know anything about finance, and he's just going to teach you physics. What is his definition of a complex dynamic system? He he will say it has four characteristics. One, diversity, meaning the agents in the system have diverse views. If we all think alike, it's not complex, it's boring. But if we have different opinions, pretty interesting. The second one is they have to be connected. What difference does it make if you have diverse views? If you're not connected through some channel, then that's not going to be an interesting system. Three, there has to be interaction. So what good does it do to have a connection? Like We're connected right now over the internet, but if we weren't talking to each other, this wouldn't be much of a podcast, so you have to interact. And the fourth is adaptive behavior. That I, Based on what I'm hearing and learning and seeing, I might change my behavior or other people might change their behavior based on what I'm doing. Well, look at capital markets diversity. Absolutely, bulls, bears, long, shorts, fear, greed, short term, long term. We have got lots and lots of diversity. Connectedness. We got Bloomberg, Thomson, Reuters, uh, iPhones, uh, email, CNBC, uh, Fox Business, etc. Probably over connected, interacting big time. Trillions of dollars a day in stocks, bonds, derivatives, currencies, etc. Adaptive behavior. You know, Sarah Palin would say, "You betcha." You know, if you're a hedge fund losing money and you don't adapt your behavior, you're going to go out of business. So. Yeah, we do respond to what we see or other people respond to us. So capital markets are four for four. Once you realize that capital markets are complex dynamic systems, you can now import this whole body of physics that's been around for 60, 70 years into capital markets and get enormous insights. And I started working with people at the Applied Physics Laboratory outside of Washington, D.C. and Los Alamos. And what I would say to the physicists, i say, hey, let's crack the code. Here's what we need to do. It's what we call team science. And this is what we're doing at Miraclean. So let's get a physicist. Let's get an applied mathematician. Let's get a developer, an engineer, a behavioral psychologist, a lawyer, an economist, and a few other folks. And let's team up and crack the code. And the physicist would say, that's great. What a great idea. Like, let's, let's get the team. Let's get some funding. Let's do it. I would talk to PhD economists. They would say, why would we do that? You have nothing to teach us. We know everything about economics. Why would we work with a physicist? In other words, physicists were more open to advancing the science of economics than economists were. So that was one of my discoveries. So we just solved that problem by putting our own team together. So the journey was, as a lawyer, I felt that I did my job at Long Term Capital. I brought the team through that. Everyone emerged without a scratch. People were back on their feet. Reputations intact. Got back in the business. But as a person and uh, as just intellectually curious person, I was very, very dissatisfied that the smartest people in the world didn't get it right. And so that led me on an intellectual journey through the branches of science. And I I really learned Bayes' theorem at the CIA. Complexity theory I learned on my own. I'm a little bit of an autodidact, as you can probably tell. You know, I teach myself a lot of stuff. But Bayes is something I learned at CIA because we were trying to predict the next terrorist attack after 9-11. Well, how many data points do we have? One. We had one that there was, had never been an attack like 9-11, 3,000 Americans dead. And so if you're Janet Yellen, you'd say, well, okay, let's wait for 10 more attacks, 30,000 dead, and then we'll have a time series, and then we can look for a correlation. No. When it's life or death, you can't do that. When you're in the intelligence community, you don't have that luxury. You have to go tackle the problem with what you have, however scant. And that's what Bayes will let you do. You form a hypothesis based on whatever you have. Is it enough to satisfy a frequentist statistician like Janet Yellen? No, but it's the best you can do. And sometimes when you have nothing to go on, you make a guess. But you're honest with yourself. You say, this is a guess. And it's 50-50. I could be wrong. But then what you do, you look at subsequent data. This is why it's called causal inference or inverse probability. Because what you're doing is you're updating the hypothesis with subsequent information. So when subsequent information comes along, you ask yourself a question. What is the probability that that subsequent thing would or would not have happened if my original hypothesis were true or false? In other words, what's the conditional probability of the second thing being true if the first thing was true? Well, if it's high, then you've now strengthened the original hypothesis with the subsequent data. If it's low, you you lower the odds. So you might take that 50%, that guess. And you might upgrade it to 60, 65, 70 as this new stuff comes in, or you might lower it, you might abandon it, it might go to zero say, hey, well, none of these other things would be happening if I were right, so I'm probably wrong. So discard that and keep going.
1: Jim, what a pleasure chatting with you. I mean, this was just fascinating stuff. We're just so thankful that you come back on the show. It's always so much fun to hear what you're up to because it's always something so fascinating.
2: Well, I always say great questions make for hopefully great answers. So this is absolutely one of my favorite shows. And it's the only one I'm doing. Like I say, I'm just absorbed in this book, but I was uh, glad to have the opportunity to uh, be with you guys.
1: Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Jim. Uh, We just really appreciate it. And if uh, people listening to this want to learn more about you or find you on the web, uh, give them some information so that they know where to find you.
2: Sure. Uh, For uh, anyone interested in the uh, predictive analytics, that's uh, Miraglim, M-E-R-A-G-L-I-M dot com. That's our company website. I'm very active on Twitter at James G. Rickards, R-I-C-K-A-R-D-S at James G. Rickards. Also, if you want to have a look at Collide, I have my own uh, channel over on Collide and I I do uh, weekly interviews. So, uh, and of course, my books and a new one coming out on October 30th. All right. So that concludes
1: our episode for today and we'll see everyone next week.